Check podcasts. This is Van Collar. Van Collar. Welcome back to This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir. Our featured guest tonight was a twice-elected counselor of the District of Central Saanich, a member of the Sartlip First Nation, and a former interim leader of the BC Green Party. He is the BC Greens MLA for Saanich North and the Islands. And fun fact, BC Green leader Sonia Fursano's mom officiated his wedding. He is Adam Olson. Adam, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. So earlier this month, the BC Coroner Service released a report with recommendations after examining last year's heat dome event, which resulted in 619 heat related mm-hmm. deaths. When you go through the report, what new information did we learn? Well, we learned that uh, it was the most vulnerable people in our province uh, that passed away during that uh, that unfortunate event uh, last last summer and uh, they were largely seniors, largely had uh, very complex uh, health needs and as well uh, came from um, marginalized communities in, in our in our province. And so uh, what we're seeing uh, with uh, these impacts of climate are the um, most vulnerable people in our province are the ones that are being impacted the most. Now, BC Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth has said that many of the recommendations from the report are already completed or underway. So let's just ask the big question. Is BC any better prepared for future extreme heat events a year after this devastating heat dome that, again, led to the deaths of 619 people? Look, I think that we understand what happened last year better. Uh, the day before the uh, BC coroner's uh, report, uh, the death panel report was released, uh, Minister Mike Farnworth came out and said that we were going to be using a, a alert response system to notify British Columbians that, uh, that you know, future for future heat, extreme heat events. Um, I think that uh, there's a lot in this report that uh, is yet to be determined. Um, I think that we need to better understand who the vulnerable people are and where they are. And, uh, you know, we see in uh, New York City as an example where people can uh, identify themselves as and, and uh, request to be checked on uh, during heat waves. Uh, I think that we've got a lot of work to do with uh, the provincial government, with local governments and making sure that we have uh, the plans in place. And as well, you know, uh, even though we are looking at a June uh, for 2022 that uh, appears to be um, you know, less hot than it was last year, for sure. Uh, we're still looking at July and August as a, as a potential for more extreme heat events. And so, you know, what are we doing as a province in order to ensure that uh, those vulnerable British Columbians have access to uh, air cooling centers or um, uh, air conditioning fans? Uh, I don't see the provincial government putting in place uh, subsidies or uh, rebate programs to ensure the, to ensure uh, that people have the uh, infrastructure that they need in order to stay cool uh, during these extreme heat events. To me, a lot of this comes down to healthcare capacity. And as you just said, you know, access to resources like being able to access cooling centers or having air conditioning or fans or that, that type of thing. So 
has the province done anything in those two regards? Because I don't think an alert system alone would have saved the majority of, of these lives. Well, you know, we were talking about that heat dome or the extreme heat event for a couple of weeks leading up to it. There was a, a lot of information uh, for British Columbians. I don't know that we, as as a as a population, necessarily took it as seriously as uh, the event was a very serious event. Uh, when we're talking about the most vulnerable British Columbians, uh, the the question is: Will they even get a heat alert? Uh, will they have the uh, the the devices that uh, that we're going to get an alert, of, you know, uh, on the cell phone? Uh, do, do they have the minutes in order to be able to to receive those? Uh, what about a ride? You know, many uh, many British Columbians, especially seniors uh, who have uh, complex healthcare needs, uh, may not be able to actually get to a cooling center. So it's not just about identifying who these people are; it's also putting in place the infrastructure to be able to help folks get to those uh, cooling centers and to be able to provide them the, the uh, resources and the infrastructure that they need. So uh, when, you know, Minister Farmworth came out and said, we're going to use an alert system, I think that was a criticism from last year that absolutely uh, we didn't use a system that was in place. We should be using that. We should also recognize that that's not a complete solution to the problem. And that my preference in this, of course, you know, would have been for Minister Farnworth to put in place a comprehensive plan like we see in other places. I think that it's partly in place in New York City. I think France has a has a, a complete a plan in place. So we need to be proactive in this. We've seen what happens when a government is reactive. British Columbians, unfortunately, have passed away in that situation. Now it's incumbent upon this government to work with the provincial or the federal government, sorry, work with local governments, work with uh, Indigenous nations to ensure that there's a robust plan in place for this summer and for future summers. Just talking to you now, it just sounds like we're not that much better prepared for these extreme heat events. Is that a fair assessment? Like, it sounds like we haven't actually done much or or worked on the necessary recommendations to protect vulnerable people in BC. I don't get a, a sense that we are. And, you know, as someone who's very <laughs> tuned in, obviously, as an MLA, you know, uh, I've got 50,000 constituents. Uh, a certain number of those are going to be those vulnerable citizens. You know, we would be informed about this. And, and I don't get a sense that we are in better position uh, this year than we were last year. We certainly have more information. We know how these events impact uh, the populations. We know where the highest impact is. That's that's better than we were last year. However, we also know that we need as a provincial government to put in place uh, the, the resources and the infrastructure to be able to support people. And I don't get a sense that we're there yet. I still think that if for the summer of 2022, we're going to be far too reactive when we have an opportunity between now and July and August to be more proactive in, in our response. I certainly uh, hope that there is more going on, but, you know, uh, hope is not uh, good enough either. So we're going to continue to encourage this provincial government to, to take the necessary steps, not just to inform British Columbians, but to ensure that they have all of the things that they need in order to be safe and healthy and to survive these extreme heat events. We know that this is going to continue uh, to increase as the impacts of climate change are upon us. We've known for 30 years that the impacts of climate change were going to have a devastating impact on our on people and on the natural environment. And so now is the time that we need 
you know, we haven't had these programs in place. Now is the time for us to be active. Folks, we are now in the podcast exclusive part of my chat with MLA Adam Olson. Adam, thanks so much for sticking around. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. So that's true, right? Like you were married by Sonia First Snow's mom. She officiated your wedding. Yeah, it was before I met Sonia, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, Jan is a constituent of mine in Saanich North in the Islands. And uh, our family knew her going back uh, a few years. And um, the story is actually, it doesn't, it doesn't make me look very good, but it was my job to find an officiator for the wedding. And I think I had one job. And I didn't do a very good job at that. Uh, and so um, we approached Jan because she seemed like a very official type person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, it was important for um, my, my wife's grandparents to see us get married officially. Uh, and Jan did an incredible job. She almost backed uh, off of a rock bluff and into the Saanich Inlet. Oh, no. Uh, we, my, one, of, one of my family members stopped her from that tumble. And then uh, a few years later, we uh, Sonia and I met and ended up uh, being in the position that we're in now, which is uh, seeing a lot of each other. So, yeah. How long from when you met Sonia to realizing that her mom, you know, officiated your wedding? Well, so her so before actually, um, because uh, when Andrew Weaver was working to try to get Sonia to run for the BC Green Party, mm. Jan kept telling me, hey, you know, my daughter, Sonia, you have to work on trying to get her to run with you. So, yeah, no, it, it, it came together before. Um, but, you know, it was it was weird that Jan played such an important role in Emily and my life. And and then uh, for Sonia and I, of course, to be uh, almost like um, legislative siblings, you know, as close to it as you can get uh, being in a two party caucus and and uh, working very closely with one another. It's uh it's a very interesting uh, journey that we took to get to where we're at. Totally, yeah. Well, I appreciate that story, and I was very uh, amused when I heard that. That's so cool. Um, I, I want to shift gears here. Obviously, I, I want to spend the the podcast portion of our chat uh, with a little more room to breathe to discuss the Royal BC Museum. You know, mm-hmm. I, I feel like arguments about this museum being too expensive or why it shouldn't be a priority in this province with all the overlapping crises that we have. I feel like those arguments have really been exhausted. But I think you have a much deeper and a much more personal criticism mm-hmm. of the Royal BC Museum. And you actually wrote about how the announcement of this billion dollar Royal BC Museum upgrade, you know, new building, it brought you to tears. And and I don't want to editorialize any more on my bit or even set this up more than it needs to be set up. I I, I just want you to explain in in your comfort level uh, what upsets you about the Royal BC Museum. Um, well, let's be clear. It's not specific to the Royal BC Museum. It's museums in general and and specifically how they storytell about Indigenous cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, uh, as with some personal experience, how they came to obtain their collections. And right. so the way that this was profiled was that it, we are going to display our collective history uh, in this in this place. And, you know, the premier... Premier Horgan has said several times that this is about our collective history. And when I hear that, it it be it is an emotional, I have an emotional response because this is not our history. This is who Indigenous people are today. And many of the items 
many of the ceremonial items, in fact, that are on display in the in the museums uh, in British Columbia and around the world uh, are applicable today. They're part of our vibrant cultures across the province. And so to hear a, a government that continues to talk about reconciliation and how important it is also frame uh, this as, uh, you know, Indigenous people as the past is is really troubling to me. And it, it makes me sad because I, I feel that we in so many ways have made great strides forward, but yet we're still trapped in these old colonial narratives, the, these old kind of uh, ways of discussing it. So that's the first piece. The second piece is that, you know, the uh, I've had a number of conversations with this government since I was elected in 2017 about repatriation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are several hundred uh, ancestral remains for just Saanich alone in the Royal BC Museum. And these are people. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a rattle or it's not a mask or it's not a drum. These are our ancestors. Yeah. And um, oftentimes we hear uh, from museums that we can't return them because there's no place for us to store these items in a secure and, you know, uh, climate controlled area. And then when the when uh, the, the premier comes out with an announcement to build an eight hundred million dollar museum in the Inner Harbor, I can't help but think that that goes before having the conversation about how Saanich and other communities across the province can build with no resources, and the provincial government has all the resources, uh, the facilities that we need in order to be able to achieve the repatriations that we want. And so uh, there was a deep sadness in me that, that it was the government is spending this money before having the conversation. And we've seen with you know, CSHAP First Nation as well with the Saanich Nation uh, here in, in the writing that I represent, writing letters to the, to the premier and to the minister saying, look, we haven't had this conversation yet. You know, these are items that are part of our negotiations and you've made this announcement, but the conversation hasn't been had yet. And, you know, I can't help but think how difficult it is going to be to have this conversation after a museum is built. So, you know, the first thing that comes to mind hearing you speak about this is, you know, BC passed UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on, yeah. on uh, Indigenous Peoples. Um, doesn't that mean that every decision has to be in, you know, a, a framework the, uh, of reconciliation or, or or with Indigenous peoples in mind? So so how can this decision move forward without consultation? And, and as you said, you know, these are literally human remains. And I, I don't want to use the word artifacts. These are things that that belong to other communities. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, what was the point of UNDRIP or, or where's the enforcement or sort of the, the ombudsperson ensuring that, that, that it's being carried out as in the spirit of, of, of this historic legislation? Uh, well, I think that if it was, uh, if it was easy, um, that would be one thing, but the, the declaration act is, is not easy. And I think that first, and foremost, Indigenous nations are learning how that act benefits them. And I think the provincial government is also learning, and the federal government, they're both learning how to use this act for their benefit uh, as well. And so it's becoming, in some uh, some ways, it's becoming more complex as, as everybody is learning how to, to use the act. 
Uh, there are certainly aspects of, and, and I, I don't have the articles right in front of me, but that talk about repatriation and the, the right to self-determination and, and the right that Indigenous peoples have to these items. Um, you know, we've, we've heard a lot in the last number of years about, or last, yeah, number of years, about the residential school history in this, in this province and mm-hmm. how those tools were used to remove language, to remove culture, and to, um, you know, kind of expedite the assimilation of Indigenous people. What we haven't been talking about is how the items that we go and view in the in the museum and all of the items that are stored away in the basement of the museum, how museums came to the possession of those. And they are grotesque stories. They are not nice stories. They're, it's not like an Indigenous person sold these items to them in in you know, in a, in a fair sale. Uh, many of these items and their stories that uh, from, from our writing and from beyond where, you know, we've got p- people who are settling the land and literally going and digging up graves, taking the items, the, the cultural items that were buried with people and selling them to collectors. Wow. There's uh, s- scenarios where entire villages were devastated by s- the smallpox virus, um, com- completely no, nobody left and items just taken from those villages and sold. And so the, the museums will be able to say, well, we purchased these items. But the story from the from Indigenous people is one of deep sadness. Those are items that are very important to our cultures, our identities, who we are as, as Indigenous people. And um, they're now being put on display behind a glass case. That's not where our culture is best. The story of our cultures are best told. Mm-hmm. The stories of our cultures are best told on the land and on the water and in the territory. And I think, you know, even when um, the story is being told, they're strictly curated by who? Well, the dominant culture. That's who's telling the story. And many items that I saw, for example, in the Chicago Field Museum when I visited several years ago, before I got elected, in fact, um, would never be displayed by local uh, people. They're items that are so sacred that that would never they would never be in public. Hmm. But the curators don't know this. They they don't have any context about the items that 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 they're viewing. And so there they are, a mask, a rattle, a drum, a, an, an item in full display. And, you know, I said to the curators as we were walking through, I said, that item shouldn't be public. That item shouldn't be public. Here's another item that shouldn't be public. Hmm. They had no clue. So, but what they're doing is they're telling a story about the past. And what they're failing to acknowledge and recognize is that these Indigenous cultures are vibrant, they're living, they're breathing, they're existing. And not only that, they're surviving. All of this devastating policy and and decisions that have been made about Indigenous people, without Indigenous people, we survived. And here we are. And now it's time for us, if the government is going to be uh, honest about what it is that they're doing or saying, their actions need to follow up with that. And that's going to be you need to have the conversation about where these items are best displayed, if at all, before building a massive monument to our history in the downtown Victoria. I can understand why the premier and the minister want to do that. I can understand. I'm a, I worked in the tourism industry before. I can fully respect what the goal of that is. I, I can understand why they want to do it. But from, you know, and, and, and from a, 
the, the colonial history and from the natural history of British Columbia, there's great stories that, that are, you know, largely not controversial. But when it comes to framing this as a reconciliatory action, that's when I think the, there is some offense being taken because, um, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't reconcile by doing the same thing that happened in the past. You've got to have different behaviors. You've got to have different actions. And so that's the reason why I've come with such force and which, with such criticism of this decision is because it's partly the decision that they made. And then it's almost entirely how they announced it and how they made it because they're not consistent with what, the, the, you know, the, their announcement and, and their actions is not consistent with the commitments that they've made in passing the Declaration Act. So BC Minister of Tourism, Melanie Mark, says that this museum is, and I think you just alluded to this, quote unquote, reconciliation in action. You know, I, I'll, I'll plead ignorance no. here. Is this a difference of opinion between you and her or is she simply wrong? Um, well, I'm going to land on the difference of we've got different opinions about this. I do not believe I mean, I believe it could be, but I don't believe that the process that they undertook was. Um, for example, you know, I think uh, normally governments making this kind of decision would have engaged the opposition parties and, and had conversations about it. And all of this stuff that I'm raising with you, Mo, everything that I've raised publicly, uh, you know, after the announcement, none of this is partisan for me. None of this is, is necessarily political for me. I would have said everything that I've said publicly, I would have said it to them. Uh, you know, in, in a briefing. And so um, the, 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 the reality of this is that Indigenous nations have been trying uh, to actively pursue repatriation as the primary goal, not building big new museums in, right. in major cities. They've been actively trying to repatriate. The solution from the provincial government's perspective in 2020, I believe, was a $500,000 grant split into $30,000 grants in order for Indigenous nations to start that process. That's about 15 grants. We're talking about, you know, as the, as the minister and as the premier said, you know, 27 kilometers worth of records and 7 million items. Like, yeah. the repatriation effort pales in comparison to what, you know, to, to what it is that, that is actually being done. And, and museums are not inclined to be giving their collections up. They're there to, to, to protect them and to, and to show them yeah. and to display them. So what we're coming into is some philosophical differences of opinions about museums, the roles that they play. And I actually think that it's a better story, frankly, and it's not just me, but I, I think there are Indigenous nations across the province that believe this, to bring these items home, to have the Indigenous people tell their own story on their own territories, and then invite people to come and hear those stories from the from the people who are telling them. And you know, it's not as simple as to say, okay, let's take all the items and ship them back. That's that's not a process that's going to work either. It's it is it is literally about an engagement process that is going to take a lot longer than I think this government was prepared to do. They wanted to have a big shiny um, you know, announcement. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't even release with it a, a picture of what it was that they're building, which I think was a, a, major, um, a, uh, a major issue with their announcement overall. Mm -hmm. But you know, building a big museum in Victoria is, is not an act of reconciliation. 
it could be an act of reconciliation if they had engaged uh, the the repatriate repatriation, the um, you know how are these items going to be displayed if they engaged Indigenous nations on that at the front end. But as we're seeing, as more and more nations write the write the province and say, hold on a second here, this is not exactly how we want it to be. Um, you know, the, the whole thing be, is, it, well, as I've said publicly, it's a public relations nightmare. Right. And this government brought it on themselves unnecessarily. I, I want to touch on um, language just for a second, because I only learned recently um, about how factually incorrect the term artifacts is. And you've you know, been using the word items when you're talking about repatriation for, for someone who is, you know, new to, to, to this subject or is learning. Can, can you explain why the word artifacts is just simply not correct in this context? Well, I think if you actually take the definition, the dictionary definition of artifact, I think that it's, it could be applicable. What I'm trying to do when I move away from the language of artifact and talk about ceremonial items or talk about items of cultural significance is I want to get away from this notion that we're from the past, that Indigenous people are in the past. Right. We, the, these items are relevant today. Some of the items, in fact, could be taken directly out from behind the glass with a little bit of work, cultural work that you know is, is done in the communities may be able to be used in ceremony. Hmm. And so like now and, the, and, and ceremony that, you know, you could be invited to, to, to view and participate in perhaps even. So when we, when we think of artifacts, we think about these things from the past, you know, and, and it allows us to kind of separate, um, you know, that was then and this is now. Well, actually it was then and it is also now. And so I, I choose not to use the word artifact and, and, and well, primarily because these are items of, of very high importance in ceremony. And as well, they're culturally significant today as they were uh, in the past. And, you know, there, there is, um, there, there are people in our communities that can continue to make some of these items. However, you know, I think that uh, the items that are in the museum that have been collected uh, th their place is, is in the territories. And so for me, I don't, I don't view them. Uh, they are artifacts. I think technically the dictionary definition of it, you could call them that. But from my perspective, I think it's important for us to recognize the cultural relevance today. Indigenous people are not curiosities from a time long ago. We are here. We survived. We're, we're we are revitalizing our languages. We are engaging in our cultures. They're beautiful. Um, they're an in, in, incredibly important part of who we are as, as, a, as a province. And I think that it's important for us in, in the language that I'm using, especially recently, is to really emphasize the fact that um, the way that the premier and the minister are framing this as part of our collective history, I want to say that is actually offensive. It is part of our collective identity of who we are as, as a as a a vibrant, diverse province today. Yeah, very well spoken. Um, and I, <laughs> you know, I'm learning a lot talking to you right now. But w when we zoom out, ultimately, can this museum 
truly proceed in the spirit of UNDRIP, in the framework of reconciliation? Is it possible? Or are you saying, you know, the whole thing is is kind of a wash and, and we need to rethink museums in general and, and certainly in BC, this museum? Uh, no, it, it can absolutely be uh, successful. And I think that it absolutely is part of the, the, the city of Victoria. I think museums, art museums, they definitely have a role. I think we have to rethink who's telling the stories and how we're engaging the, the stories that are being told. I think we have to rethink uh, the how th items are displayed and how we determine what is displayed and who's in control of that. I think that we have to be far more serious than paying basic lip service to repatriation. We have to mean it. We have to follow it through. And that means that the provincial government has to resource it. Um, you know, I, I continue to run into language where the government says, oh, it's such a huge task. It's a gargantuan task, uh, you know, to, they're to do all this <laughs> to all to do this reconciliation. And I say, well, you know, so was the Yahi, the Blueberry River First Nation decision about accumulative impacts. That was yeah. massive, wasn't it? Yeah. Two, three months later, they, you know, when this government is motivated to do something, nothing is gargantuan. Yeah. But so so basically the role that I'm trying to play here, Mo, is to create the space for us to have a proper discussion about this, to say, look, we're not going to go into building an eight hundred million dollar museum without having an open public conversation about how we got a handle on those items, what's in the collections, where they came from, what is the purchase? How did that happen? Mm -hmm. Let's have an honest conversation about it. Because actually, reconciliation means that we're looking at the things that we did incorrectly in the past, and we're not making the same mistake twice, uh, making the same mistake again, I should say. And so right now, this government is on the path of making the same mistake over again. There is an opportunity as we go forward for repatriation to play a much greater role for Indigenous nations to have the resources to build storage facilities to bring their items home for um for museums to be built across this province and and not just to be a tourist attraction or a, an attraction to the city of victoria which as a victoria mla i don't mind if people are coming to the city sure. however my preference would be to be able to take my kids out on the road and show them the beautiful diversity of this province and and to have the people of those nations telling the stories about who they are and saying, and this is where we've been since time immemorial, you're learning about us here. And I, I think that that would be a great attraction to people from around the world. They'd be very interested in going on that tour. So, you know, I think that the, the BC Museum plays an important role in, in keeping records and, 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 um, and I think that that's going needs to be maintained. They're building a big storage facility in Colwood. That's, uh, that's good. You know, we need to protect these items. However, I think that this conversation needs to be uh, far more multidimensional than it is right now, which is basically just, you know, a crown government making a decision to, to spend a lot of money and then calling it something which, frankly, it's not. Right. Well, I appreciate the, the voice and the perspective you've brought to this issue. And that's why I really wanted to 
you know, have the podcast part of our chat dedicated to this because I think it it warrants something greater than just a, you know, eight minute television segment. So so Mm -hmm. thank you for that. Uh, Before I let you go, I want to switch gears here. You know, I have to talk politics with you. Talk a little, uh, you know, get your perspective on what's going on. I've I've asked Sonia, the BC Greens leader, Sonia First Snow, on a few occasions about this question. You know, it was coming. I've asked her to contrast how she is a different leader than previous BC Greens leader, Andrew Weaver. But I want to hear your perspective. Can you compare and contrast their party leadership styles? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that Andrew was, uh, you know, a big, larger than life character, very much cut in the in the mold of the of traditional leaders. He was very much the kind of leader that we needed when he when he was elected, breaking through the noise of BC politics, this kind of bifurcated, uh, bipartisan uh, political landscape where there was two large parties, and and you know, I think that the BC Greens, in order to break through needed that kind of uh, a leader and that kind of character. I think where we're at right now when we're facing multiple crises is we need a leader that is able to build the relation. And, and this is very much what Sonia is, is a, is a builder, a, someone who uh, works, is, is able to work across the party lines, someone who is able to build coalitions and she listens. Uh, she's a, a very much a, an easy person to, to connect with. And so, you know, I think that as our party evolves, Sonia is, you know, as Andrew was at that time, Sonia is the kind of leader that we need now. She's got, uh, you know, a background in education, a background in, in um, environmental activism. Uh, she's got the right tools. And so for me, I think we're on the right track. Uh, and in order to break through, we needed a leader like Andrew. And in order for us to build and to to build relationships with the people that we need to build relationships with in order to be successful going forward, uh, Sonia is the perfect leader for that for that um, that job that we have ahead of us. I call her the philosopher queen, and I've done that, I've done that on the show. I'm going to have to come up with a title for you, Adam. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I will accept that. <laughs> I'll let you know. Um, more on a sort of philo- sort of a philosophical level, how do you see your role in opposition? Because uh, BC Liberals leader Kevin Falcon and I had sort of an interesting discussion about this. And I think he said something along the lines of, oh, you know, I'll tell the government uh, that they're doing a good job when they're doing a good job. And I, I I pushed back a little bit and I said, sure. But also as official opposition, even if you agree with something the government's doing, you know, you still have to hold them accountable to explain how they reach that policy decision. Right. So I'm just curious what you personally, when, when you enter uh, your office and you are in question period, how do you kind of frame your role uh, in opposition? Well, it is it is both uh, to hold government accountable for the decisions that they made, to hold the cabinet accountable for the decisions that they're making. Uh, and it's also to offer improvements. And I think that, you know, one of the things that uh, that is often not focused on, we focus on question period an awful lot. But, you know, the committee stage of debate, the the other stages of the debate on bills is where we have an opportunity to improve uh, the legislation and to, to offer and make suggestions. So it's our job to hold government accountable to, you know, as they say, hold their feet to the fire. Mm-hmm. But as opposition, we want to be proposing good ideas. We want to be 
um, proposing amendments and improvements uh, to the legislation. So, you know, I think that unfortunately in this province, what we've seen is we've seen a, a, a situation where there's been two parties and it's, and it's very much an us and them or us versus them. We're good. They're bad. You know, and, and just trying to draw, drive this distinction. We've, we've already seen, you know, this happen in, in the most recent last couple of days. 28 months left before an election. We've got these parties rolling out attack ads. Yeah. And those attack ads are about drawing a distinction between us and them. It's not about governing. It's not about improving the debate. It's not about improving governance in British Columbia. It's about demonstrating that we can argue well with one another and we're better than them. And so for me, I look at it, uh, I, I've, I've really enjoyed my time in opposition. You know, I'm constantly learning and trying to improve in, in, in being a better opposition member. But, you know, I think that there's a lot of honor in the role. It's an important role. Absolutely. It's part of our it's part of our institution for a reason, because government needs those checks and balances. And so I take the role very seriously and I wholeheartedly reject the notion that the uh, best day in opposition is worse than the worst day in government. I think I've had many good days in opposition and I'll have many more good days uh, in this role. And I take it, uh, I take this role very, very seriously. Was it weird to go from, you know, being part of the confidence and supply agreement to now being full on, you know, opposition? Like what, what is that transition like or, or did it change for you? Oh, no. I mean, it, it definitely changed. Uh, the, the government's willingness to communicate with us uh, completely changed. I mean, the, the, the notion that taking good ideas uh, from everywhere, you know, that that language that was used is not what uh, what has happened. There was much better information flow in the confidence and supply agreement. And I, and I actually think that um, it was unfortunate that it was just the Greens in the confidence and supply agreement with the NDP. I think any government would do well in listening to the opposition members and, and getting them in briefings and sitting down and listening to what they're saying. Um, because, you know, I think that ultimately what people want is a government that's governing. Uh, and every time that, the, the, that it, it, I think, you erodes into this us versus them uh, uh, battle, uh, I think that actually what happens is British Columbians go, I don't, that is not what we need right now. We've got multiple crises. We need to know that the elected officials that we're putting in those seats are working together to come up with solutions. And yeah, we're going to disagree. And, and that's an, you know, important that we reflect the diversity of uh, different opinions in this province. And I, and I represent 50,000 different opinions in Santa sure. North and the islands, right? And so we need to respect that difference and we need to find a way to have those differences reflected in the work that we're doing. It's when they're not that people start to say, this government's actually not representing me anymore. And they begin to lose confidence uh, uh, in their government. So, you know, I think that more collaboration, more cooperation, um, while it might not work well for the political strategists uh, in the parties, uh, that's not the point, is it? Mm -hmm. The point is that we're serving the people of British Columbia, that we're embracing the diversity that exists here and that it's being reflected in the, the work that we're doing. I love that. Now, you made mention of um, overlapping multiple crises. I, I, I don't think we can dispute that. So I'm going to give you a, a bit of a 
sort of a silly question, but but really, I, I just want to learn a little more about you. So if you had one policy wish, just one, let's say the premier comes up to you and says, Adam, you get to implement or change one policy in this province. What would your wish be? What would your action be? And you can only pick one. You can't say I'm going to do this and this and this. You got to pick one. Okay. So uh, the, the one that I'd pick is, is uh, well, okay, I'll just say it. I think that we need to be able to debate private members' bills. Now, most British Columbians would be shocked on this. Yes. That other I'm than shocked. the 22 members, well, but other <laughs> than the 22 members of cabinet who can put legislative table for debate, everybody else gets shut out of that process. Now, right. people across the province and, and other provinces, the federal government, all do this way better than British Columbia. In British Columbia, uh, it requires a remarkable feat to, in order for a private member to get their bill debated. In British Columbia, our cabinet, our executive have such a tight control over what happens in the legislature, uh, way, way, way more rigidly controlled than in, in, in any of the other houses across wow. the province. And, and I think that actually what happens when you allow private members the time and space to have their items debated, it starts to undermine and erode the full control that the, that the executive has unnecessarily over the House. And so my, my, my trick answer to yours, because I think that there's a lot of different policies to be debated um, that I would, you know, it was hard to, to pick which one, the one that would allow the most diverse number of policies, whether I agree with them or not, is a different story to be put on the table and debated is uh, the fact that private members bills do not get debated in this province. We put them on the table and they just sit there until it's prorogued and then they disappear hmm. and that's it. Members of the opposition, even members of the backbench in the NDP have no chance of getting uh, their private members bills uh, debated in the house and i and i just think that it's an it's an absolute shame in alberta for, for example like 50 that have been passed in recent years private members bills wow. and so that uh, david eb uh, the attorney general gave us the opportunity to use uh, legis legislative drafters to develop our amendments and our private and our private members bills so we know that they're legal we know they fit within the legal framework um, and it just comes down to the fact that government wants to be in full control of the legislative agenda. They want to control everything that's debated, the, the amount of time that it's debated for. They don't want the unknown of the member for Saanich North and the Islands dropping in a bill about whatever the member for Saanich North and the Islands thinks is important or his constituents think is important. So for me, I think that part of the problem that we have is the standing orders in British Columbia are very uh, rigid, and it you know I, I think that there's a lot that we could offer as as opposition members. And so, if there was one thing that I would say to the government to do, change those standing orders, and then what we would see is a much more diversity uh, of 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 legislation that would come forward from the private members. You know, I was gonna say that I don't think that there is a right answer to this question, but. I think that was the right answer. I am, I am, uh, I'm, I've learned so much. And to top it off with that, that was incredible. I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I feel like if you, 
explain that to most British Columbians, they'd probably be on board as well. well so. Well, if if, if they send me to Victoria, they expect me to be able to have the ability. And and so this often this falls into the, the, the framework of, well, I need to elect somebody who is going to be part of government. Why? Well, because government does everything. Well, actually, that's not the way our system should work. Right. Our system should work. We have an executive that takes, you know, the responsibility of the government and and, and you know, is responsible for it. But as an elected representative, I should be able to put legislation and have and, and defend it and have my colleagues, um, you know, critique it, offer improvements to it and then vote on it. Mm-hmm. And I think most British Columbians, if I was to explain this to them, that in fact, that's not the case, they would say, what do you mean? Like, well, what do you all I do is go there and debate the bills that the government, that the executive right. wants to put on the table. And that might not even be what the backbench of the government wants to be debating either. So, you know, really there is uh, a level of control of the agenda here that is is totally unnecessary and is mm. it only benefits the party in power. That's it. It doesn't benefit the people of British Columbia, doesn't benefit the private members, the opposition, um, and uh, doesn't benefit a, a whole bunch of, of policy areas that never get touched because it's not government's, uh, not part of government's agenda. Hmm. Well, hey, Adam, listen, I really appreciate this chat. You know, lately I feel like I've been gifted guests that I've really been wanting to chat with for for a long time now. And I know your team has, to their credit, has also been very vocal to, to have you on the show. Ultimately, it just comes down to figuring out schedules and trying to have the right guest on at the right time. Uh, and I think we, we, we nailed it. So I'm so glad that we could finally do this and I look forward to doing it again. Keep up the great work. And, and again, thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed this opportunity, Mo. I look forward to, uh, to your show and I look forward to the next opportunity we have a chance to chat. <laughs> thank you so much. Folks, he is the BC Greens MLA for Saanich North and the Islands. The man wears his heart on his sleeve, which is just one of the things that I deeply admire and respect about him. He is, of course, Adam Olson. And this is Van Color, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Yeah.